Hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore different perspectives on connective tissue conditions and what we can do to treat our symptoms and to live more fulfilling lives. Today, our guest is Mitch Marteau, a returning guest and a fascinating patient advocate and public speaker who recently participated in a documentary called Bend or Break, which documents his patient experience with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and has been very well received in the community and has about 20,000 listens, I think. And his documentary was released recently. You can find it on YouTube. We'll include links to his documentary and his social media pages in the episode notes. Mitch, hello, and thanks for joining us again. Hello, thanks for inviting me back again. Absolutely. Your first episode was so well received, and your documentary has been amazingly well received. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of having this documentary finally released and what the reception has been like? Well, it was a challenging time for me. Like I was on cloud nine for about seven days, not about exactly seven days as the documentary. It was released June 28th. And then my brain decided to go and have a major sudden strokes exactly seven days later. Uh, So I ended up in the ER and hospital for uh, quite a while and have been kind of trying to claw my way back to where I was since then. But everyone was kind of like amazed at how I was kind of promoting the documentary and spreading it around despite all those medical things that were going on. I didn't know, even with my bad history of crazy medical things happening that so many people with EDS can share, no one was expecting a 27-year-old with no family stroke history whatsoever to suddenly get that. Uh, so we, that was quite a surprise, as you would imagine. But I have been clawing my way back since then. I wasn't able to read or write properly for months um, after that event. And now I can again when I sleep decently, which is a big caveat, a disclaimer at the end there. But uh, it was really frustrating because everyone was reacting so well to the documentary, those who took the 40 minutes to take take a look at it. And then, for example, my blog, my EDS blog group, as a group on Facebook, it went from 70 members to now almost 500 members. And it all happened at a time where I wasn't even able to write because of the stroke brain damage. So that was obviously frustrating that I've got sudden massive interest in my work at a time where I couldn't do those things. So I haven't even made a blog post in my blog group since then. What I've been doing is doing all these update videos and uh, links to other things I'm working on that don't involve high reading and writing skills different EDS advocacy campaigns and things like that. So it's not like I was just doing nothing on the group this whole time, but I love writing and was only able to start writing like a few weeks ago again. And now I'm doing catching up on all those projects that I was invited to interviews, blog posts, and all these things that I wasn't able to do until now. Yeah. And I'm so sorry to hear what you went through. It is, it's so, so much and so awful to be so young and have such a, a devastating event happen. And I can only imagine how scary and just confusing that time, you know, had to have been and still is. And, you know, I, I think it's amazing that you are, like you said, clawing your way back. I think that's a good phrase that I think a lot of people can relate to, you know, if not 
you know, in the specific instance of what you're going through, like in another context. And yeah, it's, it's such timing in life is such a tricky thing, right? So like, you have this big debut, and then seven days later, it's just heartbreaking, you know, that you didn't get to just fully enjoy this major achievement. And, you know, it's it's really your personal story. And having read about hypermobility and talked to people for a few years now, I really come to take to heart the value of personal stories. And I know I've learned so much from hearing about others' experiences, you know, putting pieces together that I didn't even realize were connected or, or learning new insights. And so really thank you for, you know, being so honest and putting that portrayal together. It, it had to have been a really difficult process, you know, even before the stroke. Is there any more you want to share about how your recovery is going? Um, sure and where people can find those updates that you're putting out if they're, um, you know, looking to follow you and you know, see, see what great work you're doing. Sure. Uh, and one thing interesting about the documentary itself that was making it really hard to do, but no regrets, of course, given the response, is that in the documentary, for those who haven't seen it, my whole family gets interviewed, everyone in my immediate family, uh, interviewed about me and how the, the point that no, nobody suffers alone with chronic illness uh, the family is trying to help you the best way they can. But since I didn't have an EDS diagnosis for four years after my chronic pain began, uh, there was this whole psychosomatic theory from the doctors that were trying to help me themselves, that there was depression or something like that from my big illness in 2009 that then led to my chronic pain and psychosomatic conversion disorder, which is when you have a mental condition that leads to physical symptoms like chronic pain. And so they weren't even believing I had a physical condition at all uh, after all those medical tests were negative, like so many people with EDS experience happening. Uh, So that caused a lot of strife because there's doctors in my own immediate family who, of course, are going to be listening intently to what the doctors of mine have to say. So I don't really fault them for trusting in those doctors, even though they were, I was proven to be right over their theories in the end when EDS was very definitively diagnosed. Um, in terms of the recovery, people can, well, now I'm about to regain my ability to write all these blog posts and everything. So it's a good time to join the blog group on Facebook, which has the same name as the documentary itself, Bend or Break. If you just search that and my name should come up easily. For those who aren't on Facebook, there is a direct link to the blogger website that I'm sure you can include in the list of links at the end of this episode. And if you're on Instagram, I have an EDS Instagram page that alternates between personal video updates to just funny memes. And I try to make the memes original. Sometimes I completely make them from scratch myself, but if I'm taking them from some place that posted the meme like four years ago, I don't try to steal their thunder by sharing it right after they do. I try to find older posts. What I always do every time is add a caption of my own that uh, to add, that's like an extra joke to go with the original meme uh, to put my own spin on things and feel like I'm not just sharing someone else's work, you know? So in terms of recovery, though, it's it was also hard timing, not aside from the documentary, at least because of the stroke, I mean, hard timing, because back in April, I got a massive sleep breakthrough with a new medication that's meant for treating circadian rhythm disorders rather than just pure insomnia like many sleeping medications because I was diagnosed with this. 
uh, non 24 hour sleep wake disorder, a very rare and severe um, sleep disorder where your body clock advances each with each sleep cycle, meaning that you don't have a 24 hour cycle like a regular person. I, uh, in my case, it's actually a 48 hour cycle, meaning that I'm awake 30 hours at a time and then I'm awake, another, not awake, then I'm asleep another about 18 hours after. So that adds up to 48. And that was a good thing because that divides into 24, which means it still can be stable. It's very abnormal to be awake and asleep that long, of course, but at least it's stable so that you can predict when you're going to wake up and fall asleep uh, and all that. Because before that medication in April, it was not predictable at all. I was awake 38 hours at a time and then asleep however long, random amounts. And so I could not predict which days I was going to be awake any more than a few days in advance. Trying to plan the millions of doctor's appointments he does entails, trying to plan plans with friends was basically impossible because I couldn't know which day I'll be awake, what time I'll be awake until a couple days in advance, really. And then the new medication fixed that circadian problem changing it into a 48-hour cycle. And then the stroke ruined that all again. 50% of stroke survivors end up with sleep disturbances. And I definitely got that. And that's kind of the biggest component of the stroke's brain damage that hasn't recovered uh, mostly yet. It's definitely gotten better, but it hasn't gone back to my 48-hour stable cycle. So that's been really difficult going back to... It's not as bad as it was before the medication and everything, but um, it's been rough. And that's what's been hurting my productivity since the stroke, most of all, now that the writing and reading skills are back on their own. So hopefully these this new sleep doctor I was telling you about before this podcast started, he's a new stroke slash sleep neurologist who thinks that I was born with autoimmune problems. And then when I had swine flu in 2009 pandemic, it basically damaged my hypothalamus, caused brain damage aside from what the stroke added on to it is his theory uh, because the hypothalamus is the part of the brain that regulates sleep. So that would explain why I went from a perfect sleeper pre-swine flu infection to one of the world's worst sleepers with the circadian rhythm problem after this swine flu illness happened that is talked about in the documentary as well. So he's now ordering tons and tons and tons of wild tests, like a third brain MRI because my last two that I had for the stroke didn't have contrast. Only my two CT scans did, unfortunately. So hopefully he's going to get to the bottom of all these mysteries because he's very invested in doing so because I'm kind of the perfect patient for him, a 27-year-old stroke survivor with zero sleep problems until they got this potential autoimmune illness. And so hopefully I'll have cool things to share next time I'm on the show. I'd yeah, well, kudos to you for, you know, taking this incredibly horrific experience and channeling it into what can we learn from this. And, you know, it's so great. It sounds like you got connected with a great doctor who's really interested in getting to the bottom of what's going on with you. And, you know, we're hearing a lot about long COVID and people ending up with POTS and, and other conditions that are common to the hypermobile population. And so hopefully, you know, that research will start to, to kick into gear. And it's so great that you're a part of that. To go back to something that you referenced earlier about the documentary, I think that is one of the most powerful aspects of the documentary that you, I mean, I mean, your story obviously is just incredibly powerful. And, but Having having your family tell the story really illustrated, as you just said, the the immense toll that this takes on families and the 
the kind of externalized suffering um, or the peripheral suffering that happens as a result of diagnoses not happening in a timely manner. And not only that, but like in your case, which as you referenced, is an all too common occurrence in the hypermobile population where people are diagnosed with some form of psychosomatic condition, or they're just diagnosed with the behavioral sort of exhibition of what's happening to them on a biological level. So, you know, it's noted down that they have depression or anxiety, but the underlying, you know, reasons for those mood differences are not recognized and then not treated as such. I, yeah, I had I have to imagine that was an incredibly difficult experience, but it seems like there was kind of some healing and some reconciliation in, in being able to tell such a difficult story, but yet one that so many people relate to. And so I just I really commend your your openness and your your commitment to getting your story out there, but also in a way that does speak to uh, narratives that are very common in the hypermobile and Ehlers-Danlos communities. Yeah, and I feel like there would have been way less of a point to the documentary if, as you were saying, that there wasn't kind of a time for healing at then, because I think the point is that demonstrating how far gone we went, like down the rabbit hole of mistrust, not believing, fighting between the doctors and what I'm saying about myself and everything. And so to go from that to the amazing support system I have now is kind of the moral of the story that even if it feels like things have gone so far gone that they can never heal again, they can't. There's never a time where it's too late to for things to come together and improve and heal. And Absolutely. that's very, uh, very important for me because, of course, I needed support more than ever since the stroke and the hematologist at the hospital told me that for this specific type of stroke I had that's already rare to begin with to happen to a 27-year-old, he said, this maybe happened 100 times in this planet's recorded medical history. Again, that's not strokes in general, especially not many strokes. That's this specific rare type I had to have at my age. Uh, and so my response to him was, well, you know, sometimes there's different strokes for different folks. <laughs> he just starts <laughs> laughing. <laughs> so everyone was a lot less concerned after they heard about be making jokes like that still because when you have a major stroke that caused brain tissue death is what the scans showed uh, that you know that means that tissue's dead forever but the other surrounding tissues can kind of sort of heal and take on the properties and abilities that the dead tissue had but everyone kind of breathed a sigh of relief oh yeah mitch is still being mitch he's still <laughs> making humor at strange times and so that's still Mitch in that brain. Yeah, and I, I love your sense of humor and your your attitude and your your openness and your social media page is just it's delightful. Like you you have a lot of really varied content and you you're a great advocate in the community and it, it's so important to you know have these patient experiences that are relatable out there. You know, I, I think especially, you know, being a young man living with this condition, like that's not a voice we hear as often. And I think there's, at this point, it's pretty well established. The Demler et al. paper talks about how underdiagnosed Ehlers-Danlos is, and that certainly seems to be the case. It seems like that is a really big issue when it comes to men too, because, the, you know, this condition is often thought of as, you know, affecting primarily women. 
although the genetics also suggest that it's inherited in a 50-50 autosomal dominant pattern. And we, we know there are men out there, you know, that have this condition. And so, yeah, I think it's, and then, but then on top of that, to have this extraordinarily rare stroke, it's just, oh, it's, it's, um, it's really tough challenge that, you know, you've been faced with, but you're greeting it with such a great attitude and, and leaning into what the community and what the world can learn from your experience. And I think that's incredible. And you recently spoke at a, a local high school about your experience. Could you tell us a little bit about that and your kind of current efforts and advocacy through this recovery process? Sure. And two things I want to mention before I quickly forget the menses want to happen. Uh, I actually am, have been in charge of a Facebook support group just for men with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. But until this like current time, it was limited to Canadians because it's run through EDS Canada that I'm a senior volunteer for. But there is such a small group, as you were saying, of males diagnosed with EDS across the world that restricting the group to Canada really, really causes a small amount of number that can't really have enough members for decent activity. So I told the EDS Canada board my belief that we'd do a lot better if we were to open the group to international men with EDS, and they agreed with me. And so that's in the process of happening right now. Uh, We changed the group name already. The only thing left is to add the kind of questions we ask people asking to join the group, just have you been diagnosed with EDS and all those things like that. Um, And then if you have any men with EDS listening, and you're welcome to join the support group because... We still have these men and myself be in the general support groups with all of the many women diagnosed with EDS. But since their numbers are so small in comparison, they may feel uncomfortable asking specific male-related questions. And so that was the purpose of this group. Uh, But we still encourage full participation in the general groups, of course. And what was the other thing? The other thing, well, yeah, just for people who are listening and that do know like different types of strokes and the terms, just so you... I'm sure you're curious, my stroke was cerebral venous thrombosis that damaged the vein of lab. So there you go. That was probably a bunch of nonsense to most people (laughs) and was (laughs) to myself until I started asking questions after what happened. Then to get to your next point, the high S. So I went to a high school called Blythe Academy last week. Uh, It's a chain. It's not a single high school. It's got many campuses across Ontario, and it's known for kind of having smaller classes, even private classes, depending on that's what I had, because I was an alumni. I graduated from that high school after my original high school all but kind of kicked me out by refusing to accommodate me because I was before my EDS diagnosis. Uh, So I was failing half my courses in grade 10 because of the lack of accommodations. (laughs) So then I kind of had to drop out of school to focus on health. This was, again, before EDS diagnosis, this was after swine flu. When I had like no treatments whatsoever with sleep, with pain to help me. And so, of course, I was going to fail half of my class in grade 10. And I was kind of upset that they were failing me in music because it's not like I was suddenly bad at music and compared to grade nine. It's just that I couldn't practice all the new songs we were supposed to learn. So I'd say I became like went from average to below average. And my point here is, is what were they trying to teach me by failing me in that class because I can understand failing in math if I'm not getting the math because math builds onto itself each year and everything. But 
if as long as I'm not like a terrible player, why were they failing me in music? Because when you fail a student, it's supposed to teach them a lesson, apply yourself, try harder next time. And I was trying hardest than anyone in my grade because I didn't want to fail any classes, but I'd suddenly been extremely sick and we couldn't figure out why and they weren't treating me for that reason yet and weren't giving me accommodation. But I, I didn't learn any lessons. All it did was take me an extra credit behind uh, for no real reason in my mind. So like, it just shows that some schools can be very unsympathetic unsympath to someone who's quite literally disabled. Like I fell asleep and not fell asleep. I fainted in music class uh, that year and they had to call the ambulance to send me to the hospital. That didn't even garner any sympathy. In the, and then I, oh, I forced awful. myself to go to school and I would fall asleep in class or I would fall asleep in the hallways between classes. I suddenly showed up with the cane and everything. And so, of course, I'm going to be failing and everything. Um, but the students showed far more compassion to me than the staff did. They created a Facebook group without me asking, just from their own volition, called Marks for Mitch. And basically, my entire grade joined this Facebook group to give like notes for the classes that I shared with people and everything um, to make sure I failed the least amount of classes as possible. And I would have passed no classes if not for that group. And then someone else in my grade... The next year I ended up getting cancer, unfortunately. He's okay now. Uh, and so then the group name changed to Marks for Mitch and Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just funny how the students cared more about their peers than the staff did, because I feel like it should be both, if not the other way around. Yeah. And in this new school, I had this Blythe Academy. I got tons of loyalty to them because of the way they did accommodate me. And, for example, I did a veterinary clinic co-op uh, while I was at that school, which, which they, my teacher at that school were supervising, I go to work at a veterinary clinic uh, that my dog is a patient at, and then go like, once a week go back to the school to say how everything's going and stuff like that, do some writing assignments. And it was really great co-op for the most part. Uh, I wanted to be a veterinarian, as you would guess, at the time. And there was only one hang-up. I got an amazing evaluation. The senior vet tech was the one evaluating me, and I got an outstanding evaluation, the best rating you can get. Um, the problem was is my pain is primarily in my legs. It's constantly bad there to the point where I can only be standing up and walking around a couple minutes at a time. And so I would be getting around that clinic through the day on a rolling chair. And when we try to go through like narrow doorways at the same time, I would have to like either back up or that person would have to back up and then let the person through. And that wastes about 10 seconds. It's not a big deal, but I still felt bad about it, sort of, a little bit. And so kind of like not in like a big serious, I'm so sorry, apology, but to the vet, I was supposed to be working with one veterinarian who's a family friend, but she got throat cancer and also is fine now. But so I had to, again, be working with a veterinarian who wasn't supervising me, the vet tech was, but I was working with them anyway. And so they kind of, we had a bad interaction. I was in passing, giving a small apology for sometimes getting in the way on my rolling. And his reaction to that was to say, he thought I could be doing more with my legs than I was. And he didn't even know what Alexander syndrome is. So how is he qualified to tell me what my body's limitations are? The answer is not qualified at all. He doesn't know what level of pain I'm in. Mm -hmm. And so to explain what level of pain I'm in, my reply to that was maybe not the best reply I could have given, but keep, this was back in 2014 or something. And so I was quite young 
19 would be 2014. And so my response was, you know, my pain is so bad that I attempted suicide because of it in the past. And his response to that was people don't want to hear that. So <laughs> yeah, I get that people don't want to hear that. And I wouldn't go telling it to random strangers on the street, but he was questioning the level of my pain. And so I was trying to put it into context for him. What my point here is, is when I told my teacher at Blythe what happened, they were even more outraged than I was. They went and told the principal and everyone, guidance counselor. And they actually like brought up the idea of suing this veterinarian for like discrimination and things like that. I don't know if that would have made sense from a legal standpoint. Uh, maybe it would. You're a lawyer. Um, you could maybe frame on it. But th that's not the point. The, uh, I didn't. I said no because at the time I wanted to be a veterinarian, and I didn't think that antagonizing a local, well-respected veterinarian was the best way to go about doing that. Uh, but that like experience, even though I got such a good evaluation because I tried hard and was a good assistant, um, showed me that being a veterinarian wasn't realistic with my body uh, in the way I wanted it. I couldn't work in a clinic with my bad legs. It wasn't practical to be. And go rolling around on a rolling chair outside of a co-op where I'm not getting paid and I'm just getting high school credits. Um, so I had to give up on my dream of being a veterinarian because I wasn't interested in doing research uh, where which veterinarians can do. I wanted to work with animals. I'm good with animals. I love animals. And although I would wouldn't say like stop all animal testing, I, I didn't. That's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to work in a lab testing. On animals, I want to treat them and cure them and everything. Yeah. And that would require working in a clinic. And that's not realistic with my leg issues. So I actually wanted to be a lawyer instead. And then I was in school and doing well, taking three courses at a time. With my sleep issues was all I could do. But that was, I think, impressive given the level of my sleep problems. And I have nine courses left to graduate. And then I was getting really close to solving my sleep problems enough to go back to school and get those nine courses done. And then my body decided to have a stroke and bring me even further away from going back to school. So I still have those nine courses left and it would take 13 years if I were to take like realistically two law school courses at a time. If I figure I can do three university courses and law school is harder than two law school courses at a time is realistic. And that's when I start law school, it's another 13 years. So I don't know if that's a realistic dream either. So how am I finding my life in a fulfilling way when all these career aspirations keep getting big obstacles just when I'm getting a handle on it is EDS advocacy with all these great projects that we've already been discussing and are going to discuss. So going back to the point of the high school. So they, I, they showed their students the documentary two weeks ago, the vendor break EDS documentary about my EDS story. Uh, they, I think they showed it to the psychology and biology class students, which makes sense to me, given the content. And then they invited me to come give a presentation and speak to those same students now that they've seen the documentary and learned about EDS. And so I did that last week and it went quite well. I'd say the only uh, flaw, big flaw, was that I spoke for too long because uh, there was specific things the principal wanted me to add to the presentation that ended up being very last minute that would relate to his high school students in particular. And I did that, but since it was so last minute, I wasn't really able to spend time going back and choosing other things to take away. So I added things without th taking things away and ended up speaking, speaking to the students for like an hour and 15 minutes straight, which is hard on high school students 
because I had spoken to university classes in the past. And as you'd expect, they have a bigger, longer attention span. Not that it seems like they were losing interest, but still, it's a bit hard on them for an end of the day after all their classes to listen in on something for an hour, 15 minutes straight. So I'm going to keep revising because I'm now getting into this public speaking thing. It started with doing those TEDx talks when I was invited to a university to speak about EDS back in 2018. That led to the documentary. The documentary led to this high school and other universities coming to speak to their students. So one thing leads to the next. So I feel like my life is being fulfilled just fine, despite not being able to complete those nine courses and end up in law school and end up in veterinary school quite yet. But maybe that new neurologist of mine will be able to unlock these sleep mysteries because that's the big problem. Imagine trying to be productive when you're awake, like before it was 30 hours a day, but now it's 30, uh, roughly. Being awake 30 hours a day doesn't mean that you can be productive 30 hours a day. Just like on, on a very great sleep, which are rare, I can be productive for 12 hours straight, which is like a lot. <laughs> Most people go to work for nine hours, right? Nine to five. And then I'm asleep for 18 hours after that. And obviously you can't be productive while you're asleep. So think about my productivity window compared to how long I actually exist. And then you have to factor in the millions of doctor appointments that often take up those productive because I need to drive to them when I haven't been awake super long. So it's safe for me to drive to them if I can even drive at all on a given day and slept well enough for that to be safe. So my productivity windows, like, I don't want to do the math, <laughs> but whatever, that's a, like 15% of my existence. So to do three courses at a time at university and get towards the end of it, 90 plus averages basically meant my entire existence of when I feel well enough to be productive was put towards school, which made things fall behind, like using dating apps to try and meet new people in a dating sense and things like that. So I was sacrificing so much uh, to graduate and catch up with my peers that I let so many important parts of life fall behind. And that was really hard to accept given now that it feels like those six years it took to do all those university courses kind of <laughs> ended with nothing if I'm never going to be able to graduate. So we'll see what the future holds in that sense. But that was hard to accept for sure. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing all of that. So frankly, there's so much you just touched on that I want to just highlight. First of all, your story of the first school, the story with the children bonding together in this group to help you and then your classmate. I mean, that is truly amazing and a testament to what human beings can do for each other when they're caring and compassionate and realize that any one of us could fall into ill health and, and need assistance. And so we're just stronger together as any form of community. So that's amazing. And yet, like you say, it's so disappointing that you had trouble getting accommodations from the school and that experience you had being a veterinary intern. These are issues that are near and dear to my heart because I know how much accommodation or lack thereof in school and work settings are critically important issues. And, you know, like you touched on, so many people just don't even know what Ehlers-Danlos is. And, you know, they're making a lot of assumptions based on how we look or how we sound. You know, no one sees someone's total life and what they're going through. By definition, if you're seeing someone, it's on a day where they're out and about and feel well enough to be out in public. I get that it's confusing for people to understand, but 
It also speaks to the systemic nature of the lack of awareness about Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobility. And, you know, that's why I think it's so incredible, the advocacy work that you are doing. And, you know, I, I definitely, I hope you're balancing and taking time to take care of yourself because, you know, your health is the paramount concern here, but you, you managed to do so much despite your circumstances. And I, you know, I related so much to what you just said about how difficult it is to have to give up on a career once you've gone so far down this path and it's happened to you twice. And, you know, that feeling of like, oh, like, was that all not for anything? But I can tell that the skills that you learned and the perseverance and learning that some people are not accepting and quote unquote, don't want to hear it, like that guy said to you. And some people are really wonderful and understanding and compassionate and like learning to find groups that we resonate with and try to minimize our exposure to as much as possible, the, the former descriptor of people that are not understanding. And so it certainly seems to me like you've developed some really tremendous skills that you're, you're translating into your advocacy work and that you've you know, picked up a lot along the way. And, and like you said, you know, hopefully this new sleep doctor and some of that will, will lead to some significant answers for you and you'll have more opportunities. But I also think, you know, your advocacy work is hopefully paving the day for the next Mitch out there who's a young person growing up and not getting accommodations that they might have a chance to get those accommodations because someone who is using a different mobility aid, whatever it is, should be able to participate in their chosen career to the extent they're able and to the extent that it makes sense in that career. And I understand these are very complicated issues that involve weighing interests and, and balancing everything. But I've seen time and time again, how much hypermobile people have to give. And I think we have a very unique perspective, given what our community goes through. If the world were just a little bit more even tolerant isn't the real dream like truly accommodating? I think it would be truly a win-win, not only for our community, but for the world at large. And so I really appreciate what you're doing because I think, you know, when things get really tough at the end of the day, all we can really do is tell our own personal story and, and you find ways to, to get your story out there in all different formats and all different avenues. It's apparent to me that you're you're making a big difference. And I, I hope you you realize how incredibly valuable and moving your perspective has been. And it's very comforting to hear a lot of people saying those words about how many people these advocacy projects have been helping. Because it's not just people saying that it's been helping so many others that they know about, but getting thousands, literally thousands of people directly messaging me after seeing the documentary or seeing my TED Talk or other things and saying how much it helped them and their family that they showed it to really, really helps me mentally because as people are trying to tell me, I'm probably helping a lot more people doing this than I would have ever helped being a lawyer, for example. Obviously, I have great respect for lawyers and yourself because I wanted to be one myself and study how to be one. Uh, but it's also true that I have such a unique experience when it comes to medical problems mm -hmm. that is far more unique than I would have had if I became a lawyer and everything. So I'm using my uh, medical story as a way to help other people's because that's exactly what you're touching on in terms of the point of the documentary, which is if another Mitch comes along, meaning someone doesn't need to be a male name, but just if someone comes along with the same kind of situation I was dealing with, especially back in 2009, between 2011, uh, those worst years for me, when I was just getting started with all this chronic illness 
stuff for the most part, except for all the mini hernias I had when I was nine years old and 10. But basically, I, my sto- I feel that my, I have a very interesting story to tell. But the point of the documentary and my other work is to make sure no one ever has to tell the same story themselves. So if another Mitch comes along, because I know that if I saw this documentary back in like 2011, um, when things were coming to a head, it would have helped me so much to feel less alone and to feel that there were others who can understand what I was going through at the time and still go through. And so hopefully this work will make sure that nobody kind of has to tell the story again because it's an interesting story, but I don't want it to happen to anyone else is kind of the point. And I asked, I chose the university I went to because of that negative initial high school experience where I was looking which university can give the best accommodations to people with disabilities. And to my knowledge, the answer was Guelph, at least in my area of Ontario. I went to stay within Ontario, uh, University of Guelph, and they definitely lived up to their good reputation when it comes to that. And there was a back and forth with that. It wasn't just them helping me through their student accessibility services division because um, they for example, get in official note takers with fellow classmates because there were half my classes where I wouldn't even be awake to go to them. Not my fault that I missed those ones, I think. I just was not awake because of my fluctuating sleep cycles and all that. And so they move around exam dates to make sure that they're not on dates. I'm not awake and all that kind of thing. Writing exams with laptops because using a pencil, one, I have EDS writing that makes it almost impossible to read. And also trying to write for more than like 10 minutes straight at best is very painful on the joints. So using a laptop is way better. So I was happy to return the favor when they felt that, first of all, something really great that Guelph did was have a bi-weekly, so every two weeks, chronic pain support groups where students with chronic pain would come with a support group that's being run by one of the student accessibility service advisors and make friends of people who understand just exactly what they're dealing with. And they're all at the same university and can become friends and everything. And so because of my ability to kind of share deep things, personal things, vulnerable things in those support groups, they then invited me to be on a panel for incoming disabled students, which basically means that I they asked me to do that twice. And the second time I actually was doing online courses only. So I drove from Toronto to Guelph, which is an hour and a half hour drive one way. So three hours total, just to be able to help out with this, because I felt if someone treats me well, then I'm going to be loyal to them, just like I said about the Blythe Academy High School. And so this panel works that there were me and a couple other students with chronic pain or disabilities that were on a panel uh, before the new semester. And then incoming students. So new students that are also disabled can come to this panel and then ask questions to me and the others on the panel. And we can give advice and the different resources and combinations that are available to them and answer their questions. And so I was more than happy to do that. One, it helps the new students. And two, it's returning the favor uh, from them, help treating me so well and everything. That's amazing. And Like I was saying earlier, this just speaks to something I see in the hypermobile community all the time. I'm frequently hearing from people who are so collaborative and like you said, so loyal. Like when someone does show that kindness, especially after maybe a lot of us have experienced periods of people not being kind and understanding, like 
it really stands out. There's this incredible connection and commitment to making things better. Kudos to you for following those communities that make you feel supported and and providing support resources in return for pushing the the narratives about this condition forward. It's just it's so important and it's so impressive what you're able to do despite everything. And yeah, hopefully in the future things will be more accessible to to more people. So like you said, so that people don't have to tell these same painful stories over and over again. Sure. Um, hopefully this is just one next step in that big journey because it's obviously not just about what I'm doing, but what we're all doing together. You and your podcast is also an important role to play. And so it just feels like everyone's kind of realizing the need for more and more of these stories getting out there and you're helping facilitate those stories being spread. So teamwork. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Another way of putting it. Yeah, it's 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 so fulfilling to work with other hypermobile people. We just it's so nice to talk to people who just get it and to not have to, you know, constantly be explaining every little intricacy and people that kind of get the challenges. It, it's definitely for me been an experience of kind of feeling like a bit of an oddball my whole life and like I never really fit in and then finding people who you know, tell stories that use the same phrasing that I've used and, you know, are describing the same experiences made me realize like, no, I'm, I'm not strange. Or I don't see myself that way anymore. Like I'm just different. And there's a lot of other people who are different in this way. And unfortunately, like this condition has really been neglected by, you know, a lot of sort of larger institutions and hasn't sort of gotten the press of, of other conditions. But I, I think it is, starting to get out there more with people telling their stories and and your documentary is an amazing contribution and all the work that you've been doing. And it's not only just education efforts, you also are big on fun, um, which I also really appreciate. And you recently started a Toronto party for zebras in person to be able to connect. And you're planning to make this an annual thing, it sounds like, I guess, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that endeavor? Sure. Last August, we, well, I invited a bunch well, as many zebras as wanted to come that were in the Toronto area over to my house. Uh, we have a backyard pool, so it was like a zebra pool party. And we made sure to do it when before the weather got to winter temperatures because it was important that it would be outdoors so that it was COVID safe for not just me, but everyone. And just allowing people to go indoors briefly to go to the bathroom and everything. And so, yeah, it went so well that we definitely want to make it an annual event. Uh, so if you happen to be a Toronto Zebra listening in, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook and I'll add you to the like Facebook group chat we have of people who visited on this first annual one. And everyone was saying like how nice it was to be hanging out in person with such a decent group of people, just like you said, that you don't really need to explain much. Everyone gets the picture because they're dealing with everything themselves even if the exact EDS types or symptoms can vary um, to certain extents. And then there's also, in terms of focusing on the exact same concept of fun, is the, I spoke about it the last time I was on the podcast, but also the Zebra Gamer Group I have built and organized that has grown since then. Now there's 32 of us uh, on a Discord server, and I also stream either when playing alone or with this group. Uh, my stream name is Druid Zebra. And so if you want to are a gamer listening in and want to and have a, it doesn't need to be EDS. It's a basically just a gamer group for people with chronic illness so that people feel less judged and don't need to explain things and all of that. And it's been very fun. 
Absolutely. That sounds wonderful. And, you know, it's as helpful as the support groups can be. I think a chance to just have a party and just hang out and be sounds so lovely because previous guests on this podcast too have talked about how at the end of the day, we're, we're people first and, you know, being hypermobile is a part of who we are, but we're still people that want to socialize and have fun and share common interests and topics with people. And it's so nice to be able to do that in a relaxed setting where, you know, no one's going to look at you sideways if you're popping a joint back into place or mm-hmm. have to lie down to equalize your blood pressure, or whatever your individual issue may be. Yeah. I, is there anything else um, you'd like to share with us before we wrap up? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's quite a bit of things that are going to be released soon, kind of. I hope they don't come out super simultaneously because that's kind of overwhelming. But I was interviewed by CNN months ago, and they kind of apologized for the delay in releasing that interview, but hopefully that'll be out soon. And I don't know if anyone listening knows of Karina Stern, but she's a great interviewer in terms of text interviews. This this of course, a verbal podcast interview. And so she sent me a list of text interview questions that I was finally able to do now that I'm able to write again on a decent level. And the cool thing about this interview in particular is I tried to make it as funny as possible when answering the questions. And obviously with an EDS interview, when you're talking about big problems you're experiencing, it's hard to have levity at times, but with every opportunity I was looking for uh, to make it kind of both informative and entertaining. And so that's a, if you're, things sound exciting exciting to anyone listening then as soon as you kind of follow any of these various social media pages that are going to be linked after this depending on what social media websites you're on then you'll see all these things released as they're ready and you won't need to go searching for them particularly but of course the big thing you'll want to see first is the bender break eds documentary uh that is on youtube for free so no reason not to check it out yeah, and I, I look forward to those coming out as well. Definitely big shout out. Karina Sturm does some amazing work. Definitely encourage following her and the work that she does with EDS Awareness. They're an amazing organization. They put out some great content on YouTube um, and they have some written content on their website as well. Yeah, thank you so much again for joining us today, Mitch. It was lovely speaking to you as always. And it's so encouraging to hear your whole journey with this everything that's happened to you so much. And yet um, you're persevering and doing so much for the community and raising awareness and with a, such a great, funny attitude. And I, I love that you try to find the humor in what is often a very serious and difficult condition and, and just looking for those connections. I wish you all the best. I hope that things continue to go well, you know, with this new doctor and that, that you find answer. My my fingers are crossed. I'm hoping for that. Thanks for saying so. Thanks for inviting me. One last caveat is tomorrow I'm going to be talking to the kind of mastermind of this recent EDS campaign that I've been helping with, which is uh, it doesn't need to only involve Ontarians, but basically we had an EDS specialist neurosurgeon in our province of Ontario, and then he went to jail for life for murder. So that's not great. So we need a replacement and we've been starting a kind of advocacy campaign to get one by petitioning our MPPs, member provincial parliaments, depending on where we live, which is a thing that only Ontarians can do, obviously. But anyone can sign the petition, uh, no matter where they are, uh, saying that the government needs to address this great need in our community. And I'm not sure if that's kind of past that point that the petition signatures want to still be collected, but I'll be speaking to kind of the mastermind of the campaign who approached me to help 
reach out to my own following about it to get more petition signatures, and many did, which is awesome of them. So I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to the mastermind tomorrow of the campaign, find out if they're still looking for petition signatures, and if you see in the list of links from uh, Carrie that there is a link to her email, which is her name is Susan, then that means we are still looking for signatures. So we'll link the petition if there's a point to it. If you don't see it, then don't worry about it. That means that that stage of the campaign is through by now. So I'll find out and let you know. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. This was an amazing discussion and yeah, wishing you both best. You as well. I hope we both can stay healthy with the flu season coming about. Oh, definitely. Spooky. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, that's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Next time. Thank you.